0: Welcome back to Mince Levin's From the Edge. This is Jeremy Glazer, the Co-Chair of the Mince Levin Venture Capital and Emerging Company Practice. From the Edge is a podcast geared toward helping entrepreneurs thrive by learning from the experiences of executives in the technology, biotech, and finance fields. On this podcast, Mince Levin partners who work with growing companies raising capital, building great management teams, and achieving successful liquidity events. We'll discuss with investors and entrepreneurs the key reasons that they were able to build successful companies and the important lessons learned along the way. Mintz 11 is a nationally leading law firm focused on helping emerging growth companies achieve success. Check us out at minceedge.com. So today we're really fortunate to have a great friend of mine and a long-term client, Charlie Silver. Charlie is a serial entrepreneur and has started or invested in numerous companies, including RealAge, Reality Shares, Love Stories, and his current company, Algebraics. Charlie was the founder of RealAge, which was acquired by the Hearst Corporation in 2007, and which is going to be the subject of our discussion today. So, Charlie, first of all, welcome and thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Jeremy. So, why don't you tell us why you started RealAge?
1: why i'm an opportunist Uh, i was an entrepreneur in in real estate and retail and the dot-com era was coming upon us and it was the mid-90s and i was very excited and, and the opportunity came to me through a friend that there was a physician at the university of chicago building these health risk appraisal tools and we talked about how to put those online and create an internet company. So it was really, I had no vision other than the opportunity came to me.
0: So, you know, I worked with you when, when Real Age was really just starting. And, you know, the business model, like so many startup companies, really changed over time. Talk a little bit about what the business model was and then ultimately what it became that it helped you achieve success.
1: Well, we knew it was all about collecting data. The whole principle of real age was we had these health questionnaires about everything to do with your health, your wellness, what you eat, how you exercise, et cetera. And we gave people their real age or their physiological age versus their chronological age and a plan on how to grow younger. So people were very interested. So we collected this huge amount of data, 300 data points, per test taker. And we knew that data was very valuable, but we weren't quite clear on how to monetize it at first. We started an e-commerce program, we started many, many advertising programs, but then after a lot of trial and error, we lasered in on pharmaceutical marketing and we became the most elegant and premier
0: place for pharmaceutical companies to advertise online. So I think this is actually important to to focus on. You were were basically a big data company before anybody even used that term, big data.
1: That's exactly right. 40 million users with 300 data points. And this is in the early 2000s, late 90s. Scalability was a huge problem.
0: And and you also really were one of the very first companies to figure out how to monetize email marketing.
1: That's right. We really embraced a book by Seth Godin called Permission Marketing about individuals sharing information and and advertisers requesting permission to talk to them and that's what we really embraced so people opted in for information and they'd say yes I want to learn more about how to lower my cholesterol how to lose weight how to deal with diabetes etc
0: wonderful so Obviously, you know, funding is always a major challenge for startup companies, and a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs, and they're in the process of trying to figure out how to fund their company so they can grow it and get to that successful exit. So maybe talk a little bit about how you funded Real Age, Charlie, and really start from the beginning, the initial dollars, all the way through.
1: Well, we were in the early stages, and really for the first $10 million of funding, all angel funded, meaning friends and family, high net worth individuals, and I really recommend doing that. I, I've had success uh, angel fundraising uh, in many, many companies because you really shouldn't deal with venture capitalists until I would call yourself bankable, meaning would a commercial bank lend you money on your business. because. You can get VC money early, but unless your business model is very clear and very proven, chances are you're going to pivot. And when you have professional money in early, they don't really give you the opportunity to pivot. If your original business model isn't working, you have a better chance of closing your, closing down. And so angel funding are in the early stages until you really have your business model very clear Gives you room to wiggle and to maneuver, and I highly recommend
0: it. So, how did how did you identify the angels for your business to raise that kind of money?
1: It's just networking, friends, family, uh, uh, and you know, associates, and it's just networking amongst high net worth people. And I would really recommend that versus going right to venture capital until your business is fully, fully baked.
0: Did you use any of these, you know, organizations, meaning did you go to like angel groups? Did you present at angel organizations or is this really more, you know, just groundwork of the people you already knew and knew you? Yeah, well, I had already had
1: experience and success. I had built several real estate partnerships. I built a chain of retail stores. So I already had a large network of investors. But if you're just starting out, it's, it's really... You know, start with friends and family, and you know, grow from there. But number one is integrity. Never be a bser. Always your 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 reputation is the only thing you have to sell. So, do everything possible to keep your integrity and never violate it.
0: Wonderful. So, one of the things that I sort of advise entrepreneurs all the time, and I agree with you about the angel financing, and especially in this market. Uh, you know, how the VCs have definitely moved later stage. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of people have gotten this perspective that you can raise angel financing from kind of, you know, strangers. And I think your story sort of supports what I've seen over, really, my whole 30-year career is that angel money generally comes from people that know the entrepreneur and have trust and a relationship. And, and while certainly you can get angels to invest who you didn't know before, that's a really small percentage of the overall dollars that get into angel financing.
1: Yeah, that's, I agree. I mean, look, at it. at the end of the day, raising money from angels and professionals, by the way, the only thing you're selling is yourself and your trust and your integrity. And people are investing in, in the individual knowing that that person's going to do everything they can to give them a return. And re- recognize that, that that's what you're offering is your own efforts and your own integrity. You know, that, that's what you're offering.
0: So, Charlie, like so many uh, early stage companies, you know, real age didn't just have you know hockey sticks straight up to the right. There were lots of challenges along the way. Talk about some of the challenges that you faced in getting, in getting the company ultimately to the successful exit.
1: Well, again, in the early days, we had technology challenges, we had execution challenges, we had business model challenges, and then we had a market crash, um, and that was really the big challenge. But... When the market crashed, we, we had to take our staff down from 80, 90 people down to, I think we went down to 18 people. And then at that point, it was we had to grow based on our revenues and profits. So be very cognizant. Don't think the money is going to be there. It's uh, when you get the money, make sure you th- start thinking about building a profitable business. And if you have to shrink before you grow, you know, that's what you have to do.
0: So, had had the business model changed before the dot-com crash, or was it the dot-com crash that led you to have to figure out how to monetize this data?
1: No, the crash really got us to focus. I mean, once we crashed, we said we can only do one thing and focus on one vertical market, and that's what we did. We went all in on pharmaceutical marketing, ignored every other vertical, and, we grew out of it, and uh, the first big deal is we got a $3 million deal from Pfizer to market Lipitor to people with high cholesterol and the conditions that are precursors to high cholesterol, like obesity, lack of exercise, all of those kinds of things. So that really uh, set us on our way.
0: So adversity really get, gets you to focus. Absolutely. That's really important because I think, again, one of the things I see with a lot of entrepreneurs is, uh, you know, there's a lot of shiny objects out there, right? And it's easy to chase them all. And sometimes you need to sort of get that little punch in the stomach to get you to stop chasing the shiny objects and focus on what's immediately in front of you.
1: Right. And the more narrow your focus, the better. You know, while boil the ocean, you know, we're going to compete in these massive markets. That's really where I see huge mistakes. The more narrow, the smaller the market. You gotta take a beachhead before you can take the continent. So narrow, narrow focus is a, a huge, huge, valuable piece of advice.
0: That's great, really good advice. So you morphed the company, email marketing, learned how to generate revenue from big pharmaceutical companies, and that was the platform that then led ultimately to the successful sale.
1: Correct. But you know, once we got our our email marketing for pharmaceutical companies. You know, we branched out and we started doing other things, and um, that was the core business.
0: So let's talk about the sale process. I'd like to know, you know, why did you decide it was time to sell first, and then we could talk about the actual process. Well,
1: because I took in angel funding, I mean, money was sitting in our balance sheet for 10 years. I mean, my job as an entrepreneur is to get investors liquid and the IPO market didn't really seem available to us and uh, we were we had a good growth rate and a great market and it just seemed like
0: the right time to sell so how did you how did you do the sale process and what I mean let's get specific right so once you decide to sell talk about some of the things you had to do to get ready whether you know, hiring people, investment bankers, and talk about the process.
1: Yeah, well, it, uh, that's, and by the way, I sold the company three times before we closed, and <laughs> we had many buyers, and what really made the difference for us was having a highly professional CFO. The CEO is always the guy who's the uh, promoter, the salesman, the salesman in chief, but a big buyer, I mean, you know, when you're talking tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, really relies on the CFO to be the person that is trustworthy and that there's nothing behind the curtain. That's what a buyer is very leery of, that they buy a company and somehow something wasn't disclosed. And the CFO is really the person that's relied upon to provide that information so if you're in the process of selling a company make sure you have a great CFO because that's who closes the deal
0: yeah I agree I think it is really important to make sure that your financial house and your organizational house is in order and experienced chief financial officer who's been there and done that like you had for your transaction really makes it much more likely you're going to get to a successful close let's talk about the investment bankers so you did end up using a banker talk a little bit about The process of identifying the banker and why you elected to go with an investment banker on your sale
1: well if a banker does their job well they can be enormously helpful and we ran a process with UBS and it starts with you know they identify you know several dozen potential buyers and they uh, send out a book and they say please show that if you're interested, and so maybe it starts with 25 companies and it gets narrowed down to six or seven, and then you put on a road show, essentially, you meet with the, the buyers, and they orchestrated the whole thing. And by the way, they did a fabulous job for us. So that's how it worked. I mean, they started with 20, 25 companies, got them to express their interest if they expressed interest then we met with uh, the management teams and then you know then they put in their bids and then it gets narrowed down to a couple more and you know it's a whole very well orchestrated process and they did a great job and i would recommend if if you have that ability to work with a banker who really runs
0: a process like that to go for it so so when you decided to sell and before you, you uh, engage the banker, right? a lot of times entrepreneurs say, oh, I know who the, the obvious buyers are for my company. Was the Hearst Corporation an obvious buyer to you? Was that someone that you kind of knew might be interested? Or did that come through the process? No,
1: it came through the process. I mean, we had already engaged with uh, WebMD and some of the larger players in our space, and they had made offers that never closed. By the way, we had a very an excellent offer from WebMD that uh, went down to the day before they had to commit funds, and they backed out of the deal at the at the very last second. So, and we did not have a great banker at that point, so we didn't run the process that that forced them to go through more diligence
0: before they put in their bids. That's really interesting. That is interesting. So it sounds like you know there were a lot of uh, you know lessons learned during this process. So. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, you've talked about the importance of a CFO, you've talked about the importance of an investment banker, you've talked about the importance of, you know, focus. Maybe share a couple of other things that you think really came out of this experience that would be a benefit to a a new entrepreneur out there.
1: Well, there's one thing that um, I like. I teach everybody in my organization. What are the factors for success for a startup? I mean, is it capital? The answer is, I mean, there's one overriding factor that makes all the difference in the world, and that's when you should think about selling. And it's called timing. The timing has to be right. You could have great products, great management, great execution, but at the end of the day, great exits are about when the time is right, when all the factors in the marketplace, uh, for the buyers, everything lines up. And you really have to think about timing Um,
0: and your timing was impeccable because you sold in 2007
1: correct if we would have waited another year year and a half we would have never
0: gotten the deal done so sometimes it's better to be lucky too huh well
1: yeah lucky comes through you know the harder you work the luckier you are
0: so they say yes (laughs) so looking back there's probably some things that you know you look at your experience as an entrepreneur not just at real age but all the different companies you've been involved with and, and think about, you know, young Charlie Silver before you had all these, all these uh, successes. What do you know now that if you could go back in time, you would tell young Charlie Silver?
1: You know, you got to have thick skin, you know, you're going to get a lot of scars and you got to be able to take you know it's like Mike Tyson he was a great entrepreneur everybody's got a great plan until they get hit in the nose (laughs) great line yes (laughs) and that's you got to be willing to take punches and more punches and more punches because even the greatest entrepreneurs in the world out there believe me you may not read about it but they have taken their licks and their punches and you got to be willing to take them and keep on moving forward
0: I think that's a really good point Charlie you know one of the things that I share with uh, with my clients and and friends is that when I look at the clients who succeeded in my you know 30 years of doing this and working with entrepreneurs almost without exception the the ones that make it big are the ones that were right down to their last dollar before they made it big it just takes like you say they kind of get hit they get hit hard and they're down on their knees and then everything turns around and changes, and then they make it big. It seems to be a pretty consistent pattern.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, starting businesses and taking responsibility for employees and investors is not for everybody. Having a thick skin is probably the number one criteria for success.
0: Well, this is great. I want to just, for as we wrap up, I want to just turn a little bit, focus onto your current company, Algebraics, and maybe talk a little bit about you know how you got involved in algebraics and maybe just quickly you know how you funded it and how things are going now
1: well after RealAge real age was sold and um, I was looking for another opportunity uh, I got pitched the idea that all data can be represented mathematically and I knew the problems of big data And if you do this mathematical approach, it solves a lot of problems in data management and computing overall. So I got very interested and I started investing in the company, but it didn't really have a business. It didn't have a plan. It was a technology company, and that's the exact opposite way to do it uh, uh, with a startup is invest in a technology and then look for a business. You should have a business first and then (laughs) go find some technology. So this company has been a real challenge, although the technology has matured, uh, we haven't really found the right business opportunity until just recently in the last year. You know, we're going all in on the blockchain and issuing our own cryptocurrency and with the theme of own your data, we're going to be the first company that provides the ability for individuals to take back ownership of their data and get paid directly from advertisers instead of having Facebook and Google suck up all the money from advertisers. We're creating a platform on the blockchain so advertisers can connect directly to individuals and pay them with cryptocurrency to view their ads.
0: I love it. So, kind of going a little bit back to you know your roots with Real Age and figuring out how to get paid for for advertising and for reaching out to consumers. But in effect, you're sort of uh, disintermediating Real Age, right? Because this is going to be now direct to the consumer, and and the company like Real Age won't be in the middle anymore.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, those platforms—Real Age, Facebook, Google, et cetera—they're not going away. But it's just like here's a new platform, and you know when new platforms come. Forward. I mean, they're very effective for certain categories. It doesn't mean the old ones go away. Television, radio, billboards still exist in the age of di- digital advertising, but we think the blockchain and, uh, will disintermediate um, many middlemen, uh, not just in advertising, but in 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 dozens of industries the blockchain is like the dot-com era every 20 years there's a new wave of uh, technology disruption and that's what the blockchain represents
0: well this is great charlie thank you so much for spending some time with us and our listeners we really appreciate it uh this is jeremy glazer from mince levin and uh, until next time we look forward to having you back at from the edge